Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. Megan, my medical assistant, comes to me early one morning and says, I'm afraid to get the new COVID vaccine. By the way, I'm pregnant. Is it safe? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and Executive Editor of Dynamed. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Frank. I have spent easily the last week trying to dispel myths and support the use of the COVID-19 vaccines. And I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to help me and our listeners understand the pluses and minuses, dangers and benefits, and the details around these new vaccines. Well, you know, Frank, everything with COVID-19 happens so quickly compared to almost all other illnesses we're familiar with. Even if you look back at the HIV pandemic, that unfolded in terms of the medical evolution so much slower. And so this is really unprecedented, as we say so often, related to COVID-19. And uh, the information is coming at both uh, clinicians and their patients so rapidly, as well as a lot of misinformation. So it's a very timely subject. Well, let's let's start off by talking about what are the different vaccines? So right now in the United States, there's only two vaccines that have been approved. Uh, there are others in development and they may come out, but let's just talk about the two that have been, well, I, sh- I say approved. They have been approved for emergency authorization to be used. They haven't gone through the full FDA approval process. So technically if they're not approved, they're just authorized. And that's a distinction that probably is worth uh, remembering, although for practical purposes, it doesn't make any difference. But again, this is true of other COVID uh, treatments, such as remdesivir, that received emergency authorization use uh, and was not approved for these indications as well. So this is you know, par for the course in what we're doing. In any event, we call these uh, these these vaccines by their manufacturer's name for simplicity, and one is known as the Pfizer vaccine, and the other is the Moderna vaccine. Pfizer had collaborated uh, you know, with another company as well, but it's just called the Pfizer vaccine. <laughs> In any event, uh, we have these two vaccines. They're both based on mRNA technology, and uh, they both require uh, significant cold storage uh, prior to being given. And so uh, they are both, they're very, very similar. They both require two shots in order to uh, achieve their full effectiveness. And uh, they both seem to have um, you know, relatively similar effectiveness. Um, and how effective are they? So their effect, you know, effectiveness is a tricky term. You have to say, how are you measuring it? And there are different ways of determining vaccine efficacy. Now, in the case of these vaccines, the way they determined vaccine efficacy was they gave 
the vaccine to large numbers of people on the order of 30 to 35,000 participants, uh, half get it, half don't, and then they see how many subsequently have uh, confirmed cases of COVID. So what they're doing is they're measuring for clinical infectivity. Now, as we know, many cases of COVID are subclinical. People may have COVID and have minimal symptoms and may not seek medical care. So we don't know the true effectiveness on, you know, on that basis because they weren't routinely throughout the trial just swabbing people to see who got COVID and who didn't. They were really looking at people who presented with symptoms of COVID and then were confirmed for it. Now, if you take that as uh, the measure of effectiveness, then in one of the studies, uh, it was about 95% effective. Well, what did that mean? That means out of you know tens of thousands in in one arm, 170 people uh, who got placebo got COVID, and in the other group only eight. So there was a dramatic decrease in the number of infections, but it was off of relatively small numbers given the size of the population. Anyhow, so there are there are some questions about it, but it does seem to prevent clinical infection, and obviously that's what we care about most because people don't get hospitalized or die from asymptomatic infection. They, we, we're, that's what we're trying, that's what the big rush is on because of the number of people in hospitals overwhelming the system and the number of people dying. I think that's, it's an important distinction to discuss what, what, how its efficacy is, efficacy is measured. Um, but I do think that there were striking differences in the population who received the vaccine versus the placebo for both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. The, their, their efficacy based upon how it was measured was really quite significant. It lowered the risk of serious infection and, and the risk of side effects of serious side effects for both vaccines were, were very small. Yeah, if I can just elaborate on that, you know, one other way of measuring vaccine efficacy is, you know, does it generate antibodies? And antibodies is not always the same thing as preventing clinical infection and whatnot. So I, I do like the outcomes that they used. Um, the, you know, for those who are into evidence-based medicine, the critique is, well, there's a very small absolute risk reduction. But I agree with you in this case, you know, here at the relative risk reduction, which is the 95%, is I think what we should be thinking about when you're thinking about things on a population basis. Yep. I, oh, I agree. I, I very much agree. I think both these vaccines get get thumbs up, uh, and I've already got received mine. Have you received yours? Yeah. So I got the first shot of the Moderna vaccine about a week and a half ago now. Um, so yeah, uh, we can talk about. You ask about side effects. We can talk about our experiences. Well, we can. But let, let's let's go about the big one. The one that I've been asked the most often is can you get COVID-19 infection from the vaccine? So the answer to that is no, you cannot. Now, that doesn't mean if you get the vaccine uh, and a week later you have symptoms of COVID, that can't happen. That can absolutely happen because the vaccine isn't effective right away. So uh, if you are going to get COVID and the fact that you got a vaccine, uh, let's say a day before your exposure, well, then you're still going to get COVID. It's not protecting you. So you may hear cases of people who got the vaccine and a few days later were diagnosed with COVID. That's pre-existing disease. So um, why can you not get COVID from the vaccine? It is because what, what the vaccine is doing is 
it is causing the body to produce the M spikes on the that the coronavirus has that your body will normally produce antibodies against, but it doesn't do anything else. So it's very selective in in causing a certain protein to be expressed, but there is no live virus and there is no uh, other parts of the viral uh, replication mechanism that's being given. So uh, so you cannot get COVID-19 from just this one uh, element of mRNA that's introduced. I think that's really important for our, our listeners to remember, for especially for the two mRNA vaccines, the chance of getting ill from the vaccine, getting COVID from the vaccine is non-existent. You, that can't happen. You can have other side effects. So I, I had my vaccine about 10 days ago as well. Um, I had some shoulder soreness, uh, maybe a little fatigue. Um, a week later, a little bit of a headache for a day or two. And so far, it's passed. What happened to you? Well, first of all, which vaccine did you get, Frank? I had the Moderna. Okay, so we had the same one. Um, so I would say my shoulder was more than a little sore. It, it felt like somebody had given me a good punch in the arm. And I had trouble lying on that uh, side that night. And that extended to the next night. And then that was gone. As far as the fatigue goes, it was uh, pretty profound. Um, I was exhausted that night, and I've talked to a number of other colleagues who had very similar reactions. Now, the next day I was fine. I didn't like have a hangover or whatever, but I do remember I came home uh, and I was telling my son that I was just wiped out, really exhausted. And of course, he turned to me and said, well, Dad, you've been working for 12 hours. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I do that all the time. That doesn't, you know, that's not a factor. And it really does seem to be fatigue is a is a legitimate symptom of that Moderna vaccine. The people I've talked to who've had the Pfizer vaccine uh, do not really report these symptoms in the same way. I do think for our listeners, we need to remind each other that we work really quite hard. And if you're <laughs> going to get the vaccine, either vaccine, and if you're used to getting some adverse effects from the influenza vaccine, Maybe take some Tylenol. Maybe think about having a lighter day the day afterwards. I guess my point is we're really very good at taking care of others, and we really underestimate the need to take care of ourselves. So please take some, give yourself a break um, on the day of and the day after the vaccine, and, and take care of yourself. Take some acetaminophen if you've got a headache. Take a nap if you need it. Un move your schedule around to at least make some room in your life for for your own health. I think that's really important, Frank. And apparently, from what I've been told, um, we'll find out in a couple of weeks. But it's even more important after the second dose. Um, and yes. I have been told that um, when it comes to the second dose, you should not plan to work the next day. Many yeah. people are scheduling it for Fridays for that reason, for those lucky enough not to work on Saturday. <laughs> I want to I want to just go back to the uh, serious adverse uh, event risk. So for the Moderna, severe hypersensitivity reactions occurred in about 1.5% of the people who received the 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 virus vaccine and about 1.1% who received the placebo. A serious adverse reaction was about 0.4% difference or about 1 in 250 people who had a serious adverse reaction was, was greater in the vaccine group. The, the, uh, the Pfizer one was even safer. The serious adverse event rate was about 0.5% in the vaccine group, 
versus 0.4%. Now, in none of these vaccine groups has anyone died. Interestingly, there was a one in 1,000 difference in, in the Pfizer vaccine for serious adverse events. And I just want to remind everyone that at least based upon rough data now, the mortality rate from this infection is also about one in a thousand. And so you can choose your, your poison if you will, but the risk is still far less. Uh, the benefits are far greater from the vaccine than they are from the illness. Well, like any other vaccine, it's critical to make sure that people have allergic reactions to any of the components um, do not get get the vaccine. And that people have a history of any kind of allergic reaction, the general advice is that they need to be watched longer. A typical person after they get a shot is watched for 15 minutes. And if you have any history of a bad reaction, not necessarily to the components, but to any vaccine, then they want to watch you for at least 30 minutes. I want to just talk about um, about some of the other questions that people have around the vaccine. And for those of you who have been listening to our podcast, you know about my friend Phil, who spent 13 days on the ventilator. Um, he recently said to me, gee, I, you know, should I get the vaccine? How long, Alan, um, should people wait after they've been diagnosed with COVID-19 infection? How long should they wait to get the vaccine? Well, that's that's a great question, Frank, and also somewhat uh, leads to the question of, does your friend Phil even need the vaccine? He's already had COVID. Shouldn't he have antibodies to that? And the answer is that, first of all, we aren't sure how well the antibodies will protect from reinfection. We know that there have been some cases, albeit rare, and we're not sure you know, what are the circumstances that make it more or less likely? So right now, previous history of COVID-19 is not a reason not to get the, vi the vaccine. Although those people, if you are in an area where there is a limited supply, those people probably can get it later. But uh, generally speaking, if someone's got COVID, you want to wait at least two weeks before giving them the vaccine. Yep, the FDA said we don't really know, but it's you know after a couple of weeks it's 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 probably okay to get it. And I think especially for healthcare workers who are trying to get back to work and they may have been isolating and they recovered from their illness, even if it was mild, they should still still get vaccinated. I think the question is particularly pertinent because in the early part of the uh, pandemic, there were many people who undoubtedly had COVID and were told, oh, it sounds like you have a mild case only come in if you get more sick. And these people were never truly tested. And many of them believe they had COVID and many of them probably did. But um, that history, especially now being almost a year ago, uh, they should still get the vaccine. Yeah. All right, so I've had two doses of, the va of either of these vaccines, Alan. When, when am I safe to go out without a mask? So the question about safety uh, without a mask <laughs> leads to a lot of assumptions right there. So first of all, it's worth reminding that the primary benefit of the mask is protecting other people from you, although you do get some benefit on your own. The second thing is that right now, uh, first of all, you don't get the full efficacy of the vaccine probably for about two weeks until after the second shot. 
So you get some partial benefit at, uh, about two weeks after the first shot, and then the full benefit of that 95% efficacy, we think, comes about two weeks following the second dose. Um, but even then, the question comes up, okay, I've had, I'm fully immunized. Do I still need to wear a mask? And right now, we know the vaccine is not fully effective, okay? So 95% is great. It's not 100%. We still have this uh, situation where people are passing the, the virus around uh, in an asymptomatic condition. And so uh, for the initial period of time right now, we are still recommending that even if you get the immunization, you still need to do the same full PPE as you would have previously. And people might say, well, if that's the case, what am I getting the vaccine for? Ultimately, this, is a, this will lead to what is known as herd immunity, and we need to do that. The other reason to keep wearing masks and uh, maintaining social distancing and whatnot is to avoid confusion amongst the public where they see some people doing it, some people not doing it, and they may not understand, well, that person had uh, their vaccine and that person didn't, or, or this person just doesn't want to wear a mask. And so if we as healthcare workers are trying to model good behavior, we need to continue to do all the things we're asking our patients to do. Uh, which involves, you know, mask wearing, uh, social distancing, uh, things like that. All right. So let's talk about um, our patient here. Um, she's newly pregnant. Can she get the vaccine? And what about any of our other female patients who might be getting pregnant or, or breastfeeding? So <laughs> the reality is, as is so often the case, this population was not specifically studied in the trials. So we're left to rely on guidance uh, based on first principles and things like that. It is believed that it is safe for both breastfeeding and nursing mothers. I think uh, the ACOG has come out and said that for pregnant women, you need to have some shared decision-making and it's less clear uh, in that population. We haven't we don't have evidence that mothers getting COVID is a serious risk to the babies. Um, however, much of that kind of data only comes out over time uh, you, when you have longer term follow up and things like that. So the risks and benefits of a pregnant woman getting the shot are still somewhat murky, in my opinion. Uh, you know, if it was my patient, I would discuss these things and see, you know, what was her greater concern. But, uh, you know, what are your thoughts there? Well, I know the FDA advisory board said, same as you, it hasn't been studied, but from all indications, we believe it's safe for both pregnant women and for breastfeeding women. I think ACOG's opinion is you have to have a, a fairly patient-centered, shared decision-making discussion about um, what are your greater concerns and and when um, when you know what what are your what are your risks? I suppose. Um, waiting um, at least till maybe the first uh, trimester is completed. Um, a, if, if, if you're thinking about right now, in three months, we might have a whole lot more information on what happens in newly pregnant women who uh, didn't realize it when they were immunized. Um, and I, I would bet by April or May, we'll have at least some data to show its safety. So um, short term, have that discussion, take extra care not to get ill, uh, good hand washing, distancing, and masking. And longer term, hopefully we'll have enough data to feel comfortable 
getting the vaccine. Yeah. And regarding nursing, I, I really I can't think of a reason why nursing would be a risk. So that I wouldn't be concerned about. I, I agree. All right. Last question. The thing that's been fatiguing me greatly. It turns out about maybe one in three, one in four of our peers and probably an even larger percentage of the population have significant hesitancy about receiving the vaccine. Alan, any thoughts or advice on how we can encourage our, our colleagues in healthcare and the general patient population to get this vaccine? Well, some of this stems from the fact that pretty much from the get-go, many things about uh, COVID-19 have taken on a political tone, an emotional tone, a lot of anxiety around this. And so I, I'm very sympathetic to the people who are reluctant because of all of the conflicting uh, bits of information that have come from various sources. And so when you put that all in together in the speed with which the vaccine was developed, I understand why some people might be skeptical. Uh, obviously, you and I uh, have full confidence that the vaccine is appropriate, it's safe and effective. And we've we've started getting our 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 uh, protection, our vaccination. I think that's step one. You know, if you want to encourage your patients, the fact that you have gotten the vaccine is probably as powerful as anything else. So I think that it, it is incumbent on the majority of healthcare providers to step up and get the vaccine unless they have particular risks to it or they have doubts that they're going to uh, explore through the medical literature. But just as important. I think is for political leaders to step up and get the immunization. I know, uh, I believe uh, Vice President Pence was on television when it first came out, and that kind of stuff makes a difference. And you want to see people from both parties so that this doesn't become a Democrat or a Republican thing, uh, that you actually have leadership coming from our leaders, both political and medical. And it, when you see someone like the Surgeon General or somebody like that, or the head of the Mass Medical Society uh, here in Massachusetts, if these people are doing it in a very public and prominent way, I think it goes a long way to reassure the average person. I think the one other area that you have to think about when you're talking about these types of things is also minority communities. Uh, many in the black community have been particularly hard hit by COVID-19, but at the same time, for, for very legitimate historical reasons, often have a fear of new medical procedures, the idea that they're being used as guinea pigs or things like that. And so uh, I think we have to be able to talk to each patient or each provider who might be considering this and is reluctant about what their specific concerns are and address those. But at the same time, I, I do believe that modeling from leadership of them getting the vaccine, being open and public about it is super important. I agree. I think um, you know I've shared with every patient who's asked that I received it. I would do anything to have my wife and daughter receive it, and that I I strongly encourage them to receive it. And and I'll talk about the specifics that the risk of a serious adverse effect is extremely low, and the risk of benefit is great. And if people feel like oh it's just a cold, I always tell them a story about my three patients who died or my friend who spent so much time on a ventilator. Alan, I appreciate you taking time this morning. I know this was done on short notice. To our listeners, there'll be two links on the landing page to the two articles that uh, evaluated these vaccines. Embedded in the articles are videos that explain the details 
of how effective and how safe the vaccines are in treating the virus. I urge you all to look at them, and I hope within the next week or so, we'll also have a uh, very simple patient education handout to add to the landing page that you can use with your patients and peers. Alan, thank you again. Thanks very much, Frank. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.